right, let's open to Romans chapter 1. As soon as I find a Bible. There we go. Now, how many of you have uh, clocks that automatically change for daylight savings at your house? Did any of them change this morning? One of mine did. The one that we paid attention to, you know? And then suddenly Judy comes upstairs and says, it's 8.30. I said, no, no, on 7.30. And she says, no, no, it's 8.30. We have to go. And uh, that was the start of our day. <laughs> Romans chapter 1. And we're going to read that in just a few moments. Just, just, there's just really one, maybe two verses that we'll, we'll deal with in Romans chapter 1 today. And they are called the Reformation verses. And you'll understand why in just a moment. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to come to your word, to look at history, to see the significance both of this day and of what sparked it. And it was the authority of Scripture that really sparked the changes that that we, uh, we, we are part of today. So Heavenly Father, move in our hearts as we dig into these things that they would be preeminent in our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as you've heard, this year marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And the Reformation is uh, dated to the day that Martin Luther uh, took the 95 Thesis and nailed them to the door at Wittenberg. Um, This was uh, uh, kind of the norm. Okay, this was nothing out of the ordinary. People would often put things up on the door that they wanted to debate or discuss. They, they had uh, these ideas, they had these issues that they wanted everybody to interact with, and that's what Luther did. He wanted people to interact with these issues that he put on the door. Now, Luther did not want to break away from the Roman church. Originally, he just wanted to reform it and reform it specifically around the issue of what was known as indulgences. And we'll see those in a moment. Uh, But uh, events and people quickly took Luther's desires in another direction and uh, really overturned uh, the apple cart, so to speak, theologically. Now today you would think that there'd be a common view of the Reformation, but there are all types of views of the Reformation today. And many people, uh, many liberal theologians look back at the Reformation with, and they cringe when they look at it. They think it was a time of uh, really uh, oppression and intolerance and division. Now some today have amnesia when it comes to the theological significance of the issues surrounding why there was a Reformation, why Luther put those 95 theses up on the door. Um, they, they forget the significance of the five solos. Uh, so let's see if you can come up with them. There's five, so that gives you a hint. Sola. I'm sorry. Scriptura. Solo Scriptura. Very good. Christa. Solo Christ, Scripture alone, Christ alone, keep going. Faith alone, grace alone, the glory of God alone. Outstanding, okay, outstanding. You make one good theologian, okay? Um, 
so, uh, so people have pitched out those significant things that it is Scripture alone upon which we rely and shapes our understanding of God and what He wants us to do. And they've moved to more of a personalized, well, it's how I feel about God, it's what I think about God. Um, why should I try to reason what God is like when He tells me what He is like? Why should I try to come to grips with what he wants me to do on my own and as I sit in the room by myself and think, what would God want me to do? No, he tells me what he wants me to do. Tells me how he wants me to live. That was one of the foundations of the Reformation. And, and also the fact that it is grace, it's by grace through faith that we are saved, not of works and in Ephesians chapter 2, it's very clear there. Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin which made it necessary. That's the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin which made it necessary. And one of the other issues, the fact that it is Christ alone whose life and work and ministry are in person or efficient for our salvation. They alone are effective for our salvation. So we're going to look historically at Luther just for an instant and, and who he was and, and how these things came about. Now Luther was born in Germany about 120 miles southwest of modern day Berlin and his father sent him to Latin school when he was only 13 years old and then to the University of Effort to study law. Now he's going to be a lawyer, okay, so keep that in mind. Martin earned both his baccalaureate and his master's degree in the shortest time allowed. So he gets to the university at 13 and he earns his, what we would call his undergraduate and his master's degree probably by the time he's 18. That would be my guess. It doesn't say, but probably by the 18th time he was 18. He was so adept at public debates, he earned the nickname the philosopher. But in 1505, his life took a big turn. He's 21. He's on his way to Erfurt, and he's caught in this giant thunderstorm. And he fears for his life, and he yells out in, in a desperate cry. He says, help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. And he survives the thunderstorm. Well, Luther was a man of his word, so he stopped the practice of law and moved to be a monk. And you know, he was a good monk. And, and most of us, uh, I, I doubt, have any experience being a monk. Um, but he was very good. He was scrupulous. He, he fulfilled the law as much as humanly possible. He, was, he plunged himself into long and arduous prayers. And, and, and it's interesting, Joe had that book, Luther's Prayers, and those are after the Reformation. Those were written after the Reformation. They're full of this great insight there. So he would... Uh, go into prayer and fasting and aesthetic practices. Aesthetic practices for a monk would be sleeping on the stone floor in winter with no blanket. Okay? It would be uh, fasting for long periods of time to the detriment of your health. And, and Luther uh, was pretty sure that, that some of the problems, you know, we are pretty sure that some of the problems Luther had later in life were due to his long and extensive time of fasting. And then, of course, there was the self-flagellation that, that would actually take a whip and, and beat himself to try to subdue the flesh, that he would keep his mind pure and not think about anything about the flesh. He, later he would write, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. 
but he couldn't earn heaven through that way. He sought to love God fully, but there was something in his heart. He just he found no consolation. He just found no peace about the fact that God would love him for these efforts that he was doing. And so he became increasingly terrified of the wrath of God. He wrote, When it is touched by this passing inundation of the eternal, the soul feels and drinks nothing but eternal punishment. The more he tried to subdue his flesh, the more he was convinced that he was going to face God's eternal punishment. And this was quite a quandary in his life. But during his years of study, he came across what is known as the Reformation text, and that is Romans 1.17. We'll read that in just a moment. And in there, his eyes were drawn not to the word faith. Well, we better read it now, and then we'll read it again. How about that? Romans 1.17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, most people look at that and go faith, and then faith is the prominent word. Luther was drawn to the word righteousness, and he wrestled with this. Who could live by faith except the righteous? Okay, that's what he, he viewed. And, and, but you had to be righteous already to live by faith. So that was the quandary that he was, he was, he was uh, suffering under there. The righteous shall live by faith. And, and Luther said, I hated the word, the righteousness of God by which I had been taught, according to the custom and use of all teachers, that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Luther could not live by faith because he was not righteous, and he knew he wasn't righteous, and it was eating him up, personally, his conscience, theologically. So during all this time, he was ordered by his order, uh, by those higher up, to take his doctorate in biblical studies. And he eventually became a professor at Wittenberg uh, University. And it was during the time he was lecturing on the Psalms and the Book of Romans. This is about 1513, 1514, right around in there. He began to understand that there might be something different here than what he typically had been taught and saw. He writes, At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself. No longer was he focused upon the righteous God punishing the one who could not live righteously, but he was focused upon the gift of God's righteousness to man so that they could live by faith. So on the heels of this new understanding came other understandings as well. To Luther, the church was no longer an institution that was defined by apostolic succession. Instead, it was the community of those who had been given faith. Salvation came not by the sacraments, but by faith through grace. The idea that human beings had a spark of goodness in order that they would seek out God on their own, he said, was not something that we found in Scripture. It was only taught, he said, by fools. Humility was no longer a virtue that earned grace, but was a necessary response to the grace that is given to us by our Heavenly Father. Faith no longer consisted of ascending to the church's teachings, but of trusting the promises of God 
and the merits of Christ. All of this study came to a, a head, or came to fruition, we say, on All Saints' Eve. That would be October 31st, 1517. Luther publicly objected to the way that Johann Tetzel was uh, selling indulgences. Uh, These indulgences were documents prepared by the church that were purchased by individuals either for themselves or on behalf of those departed family members um, that would release them from some portion of the penalty of their sins. Remember, that was the, they still believed in a place called purgatory. And in purgatory, you were being cleansed of all those sins. And you, if you were uh, not so bad, you might only have a, a thousand years. If you were really bad, you might have 10,000 years in purgatory. And if I purchased an indulgence for you, well, that might lop off a thousand years. You'd be grateful for that, I'm sure. Well, Tetzel was a very good indulgence seller. He said, once the coin into the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory heavenward springs. Okay, you got to have a slogan. Okay, you got to have something to sell it with. Okay? And that's how he sold those. So Luther questioned the churches, and he called it trafficking in indulgences by these 95 theses. And Luther posted these theses on the door of the castle of Wittenberg, for, uh, where, as I said, were various announcements uh, and, 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 in a sense, academic debating questions were put. And Luther did this. He called for a disputation on the power and efficiency of indulgences. And this is why he did it. Out of love and zeal for the truth. That's why he did it. He didn't do it to stir the pot and, and unnecessarily. He didn't do it to destroy the Roman church. He did it out of a love and a zeal for the truth. So some of these copies were sent to friends and church officials, but unfortunately the debate, the disputation never took place. Albert of Brandenburg, who was the archbishop, sent these theses to some theologians whose judgment moved Albert to send a copy to Rome. Okay, Luther just wanted to have a talk about it. And all of a sudden these things are going all the way to the Pope and to Rome. And by the early months of 1518, they had been reprinted and reprinted because Gutenberg had already created the the printing press by then. And this went out like wildfire and spread. And suddenly Luther is, um, he's just, you know, uh, um, what would we call him today? Uh, He was the man of the hour. Everybody wanted to talk about these 95 theses and what Luther had written. Now, I'm not going to read all 95. They are posted up on a Sunday school room up on the Sunday school door upstairs. I just have seven for you. And if you read all 95, they read like a narrative or they can read as individual statements. This is the first one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortifications of the flesh. Okay? What that means is uh, you can repent all you want, but if you keep doing it, it doesn't mean anything. If you're going to repent of a sin, you have to do what? Turn and go the other way. Move away from it. 
It is very difficult, even for the most learned theologians, at one and the same time to commend to the people the bounty of indulgences and the need of true contrition. See, if I just bought an indulgence, then I was covered. Okay? Then I could go and sin and know that I wouldn't spend that much time in purgatory because I had the piece of paper that was signed by Tetzel and was blessed by the Pope and I could get out of it. It is vain to trust in salvation by indulgence letters, even though the indulgence commissary, that would be Tetzel, or even the Pope were to offer his soul as security. Do you remember what Paul said? He said, I would be willing to be condemned if my people could be saved. It matter. Salvation is an individual issue between me and the Lord, between you and the Lord. You must confess faith in Jesus Christ. You must receive him as Lord and Savior. You don't get in to heaven on anybody else's coattails. Oh, mom and dad, they were saints and, and they taught me right. And, and uh, you know, I'm just trusting in that. I sing in the choir. Well, the choir is godly, but singing in the choir won't get you to heaven. Personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what does it. They are the enemies of Christ and the Pope who forbids altogether the preaching of the Word of God in some churches in order that indulgences may be preached in others. See, what they were doing is they were, it came time for the sermon, they wouldn't have a sermon. They would have an indulgence sales pitch. That's the big issue there. Injury is done to the Word of God when in the same sermon an equal or larger amount of time is devoted to indulgences than to the Word of God. You see, the Word is preeminent. The Word is what we need to hear. It's what we need to feast on. It is what we need to fill our minds and hearts with. So events quickly uh, accelerated out of control. And at a public debate in 1519, Luther declared that a simple layman armed with the Scriptures was superior to both Pope and councils without them. He was immediately threatened with excommunication. Okay. Now, understand excommunication. We don't use that word much. Um, um, we, we might kick you out of the fellowship if you um, say you do something really bad and um, you don't, you're not sorry for it, you don't think it's bad, and you keep on doing it. Well, conceivably, we could ask you not to come back. Okay, because you're at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you know, if you're just not going to repent of your sin and you, you think it's no big dish, issue, that's a problem. Excommunication, in this sense, excommunication is a denying you of heaven because the church was the determining factor of who went to heaven. And if they excommunicated you, your soul was lost. Okay? Your soul was lost. Luther replied to this event, the, the excommun- threatened excommunication. He wrote three documents that were very famous. Uh, the Address to the Christian Nobility, in which he said there's a priesthood of all believers. We are all priests. We all stand the same before Jesus Christ. The Babylonian captivity of the church, where he took the seven sacraments of the Roman church, reduced them to two, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And then on freedom of the Christian, he told Christians why they were free from the church laws that bound their conscience uh, over against uh, Scripture, but they were bound and obligated to love their neighbors. So he responded with those three. In 1521, he was called to an assembly at Worms. Worms. W's in German are V's. Okay. Um, 
They, he appeared before Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Luther arrived to debate. It was not a debate. It was a trial. And he was requested, ordered to recant his views. And this is the famous passage from Luther. Unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with open, clear, and distinct grounds of reasoning, then I cannot and will not recant, because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Well, they weren't too happy with Luther's response, and by the time they got all their stuff together, Luther was declared a heretic, but he had escaped town, and a price was now on his head. What moved Luther to shake the church to its very core? We read it before. Let's turn to it once more and read it. This is a very, maybe simple passage, but very powerful passage. Let me start in 16, Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. What is the power of God's salvation? The sacraments, the work of the church, the order of the church? No, it is the gospel. That is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First it was delivered to the Jews and now also to the Greek. For in it the love of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Is that what it says? Oh, yeah, I missed the word, didn't I? See, we like to think about it's the gospel reveals the love of God. Because what? For God so loved the world. Okay? There's lots of stuff about the love of God. There's also about the gospel reveals the wrath of God as well and the judgment of God. Well, here Paul is focused for specific theological reasons on the righteousness of God. The gospel here for Paul is not revealing the love of God, but the righteousness of God. And it is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. Luther writes, here in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Luther said, what does this mean that there is this righteousness that is by faith, and from faith. What does it mean that the righteous shall live by faith? He said, though I live like a monk, a monk and I was beyond reproach as, as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner and my conscience was never satisfied that I was right with God. Why? He was trying to work his way into grace. I could not believe that God would be placated by my works. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and I secretly was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Old Testament without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also the gospel threatening us with his righteous wrath. He said, my conscience could never come to grips with this until I understood that the righteousness that God demanded from us, He gives to us. Now, just think about that for a moment. The righteousness that this righteous and holy God demands from us. Can we ever achieve it? Can we ever do anything good enough to receive it? And the answer is no. He 
gives it to us. He saves us. Luther began to understand that what Paul was speaking of here was a righteousness that God in his grace was making available to everyone who would receive it. And receiving it is the passive sense that we receive it. We don't actively achieve that grace. We receive that grace. It is by God's holy and perfect action that he should reach out and save those who have no business being saved. So Luther is coming to grips with the distinction. Now one of the issues, sorry to diverge a little bit, one of the issues was the language at that time. Remember he wrote the 95 Thesis in Latin. That was the academic language. That was the academic language that they were studying the New Testament in as well. But the New Testament Latin is very different than the New Testament Greek. And the Greek is what it was written in. The Latin word for justification is justificare. It comes from a Roman judicial system. And that's how the Latin fathers understood it, that you are justified through the sacraments. And Luther looks at the Greek, and it's a completely different word, and it means to make righteous, to be declared righteous. So you are not making yourself righteous. It is God who is declaring you righteous because He has given you the righteousness in order that you could be righteous. And Luther... You imagine, here's the guy, he's on the edge of despair. He's just, he's just I, I can't get right with God. And all of a sudden he reads the word and, and the heavens open. And he said, I, I can't be righteous. God is going to give that righteousness to me. God freely gives us by his grace. He gives it to people who don't have a righteousness of their own. And Luther said, said, it is not my own. It's what is called an alien righteousness. And whose righteousness is it? It's actually the righteousness of Christ that is given to us through his death, through the shedding of his blood, through his sacrifice. And all who belong to him will be saved and will come to know the sweetness of the love of God and the righteousness that is given to him. So Paul tells us that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, righteousness which is obtained by faith. What is faith? It is a gift. Oh, I've got faith. No, if you have faith, it was given to you. Saving faith is a gift. It is not a work of our own. Again, this is, this is so foreign to how Luther was, was raised and so foreign to the thought patterns and theology of the church in the 1500s. Paul, here in Romans, is saying that God has saved us in a way that is perfectly righteous. Now understand, if you thought that God had dealt with your sins by pretending they were no longer there, but they remain, God is just going to pretend that they were no longer there, and you knew that God was a righteous God, then you could never have security in your salvation because a righteous demands a penalty for sin and a payment for sin, not just a not looking at them. And that penalty for sin was placed upon whom? It was placed upon Christ. The weight of my sin, the weight of your sin, the weight of all the sins of the elect were placed upon Christ. God dealt with our sin in a just and righteous fashion. And we can know eternal security because of the way God 
has worked. How God has worked. Paul is saying the reason I'm secure from the wrath of God is because it would be wrong for God to punish me for sin when it has already been placed upon Christ. And he has paid the price for it. So God himself has rescued us from his own wrath. Let me sum it all up. God gives us what he demands from us. If I come to you and say, give me $1,000, and you say, I don't have $1,000, and I reach into my pocket and I give it to you, you now have $1,000. That's what God has done. Give me righteousness. I don't have any righteousness, Lord. I'll give you mine. I will give you mine. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, your righteousness, it is perfect righteousness. All things in you are perfect. Your holiness, your justice, your righteousness, your love, even your wrath and anger are perfect. And for us to be saved from this anger and judgment upon sin, it demands a perfect righteousness, which, as Luther said, I could never achieve. I could be the best monk in the world, and I could never achieve it. It's because the sin is within our nature. And you give us a righteousness that saves. You have sent your Son, Jesus the Christ, into this world. He has given his life for us. He has paid the penalty for our sin. He who had no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, we we can't even understand a, a love like that, but yet we receive it. Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts today that we might put aside any thought of of earning your love and righteousness, of earning our way into heaven. But open our hearts that we might receive this grace, that we might receive your love, that we might receive the righteousness you have for us, that if our eyes have been closed to salvation before, they are open now, wide open, because of your work in our life, that we would live Breathe, think on the righteousness of God. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.